Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Hey gang, welcome along to episode 75, part A of the Howie Games. Thanks for giving the show some of your listening love. Appreciate it. This week we are going with a true Aussie sporting legend, Andrew Gaze. Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye. Listen to me, time is your key. You will find out by and by. Gazy, one of the greats of Australian basketball and of Australian Olympic teams, of which he was part of five, including being the flag bearer at the Sydney Games. Throw in a couple of NBL championships, an NBA crown, which he has differing views on, seven NBL MVPs, seven, they're good numbers, and he sits comfortably in the Australian Basketball Hall of Fame, Sport Australia Hall of Fame, and the FIBA Hall of Fame. But equal to all that, Andrew Gaze is one of the nicest men in Australian sport. He always has time for everyone, and as you're about to hear, Gazy has a wicked, wicked sense of humour. A warning if you're driving, don't be laughing too much. You can do it if you try, try, try. If you try, try, try. To sit with Gazy for an extended period and chat has been one of my working highlights of the year, truly. Enjoy Andrew Gaze AM and FF. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be Revealed in King Selassie I Come on children, try it with me we want to reach Mount Zion A welcome to the Howie Games. Mm. A man that has no peer in this sport as far as basketball is concerned, oh. Andrew Gaze. Hello to you, Gazy. Well, I appreciate the introduction, but uh, <laughs> that, that is not true. There are many, many peers, and uh, but very humbled that you would introduce me in that manner. Can I just say right off mm. the top, and you know I love you, I've got enormous oh, got respect and love for Here you. Here comes a whack. But this podcast has been going for over two years, and yes. I've been speaking to your people for over well. two years trying to get you on, <laughs> and, and, and why has it taken so long? I thought we were friends, mm. but apparently yeah. that doesn't cover this. Now, you know that's not true. That and, is uh, spot on. Because firstly, I don't have any people. <laughs> right. I have me. And I still recall approximately, oh, it would have been 18 months ago. No. Uh, Gacy, uh, this Friday we're a chance. Love to. Want to be a part of it. And then uh, Friday, oh, sorry, Gacy, no worries. I can't do it this week. <laughs> Bit under the pump. Got a few other things I've got to attend to. And then... Um, uh, no further correspondence handed into. A different recommendation and memory from me because all I got back from your p- people... I don't have people. Is I got an email saying, until this show hits 20 million, well, well, which true. it did last week, until it hits 20 million downloads, our man Andrew won't appear. Well, and as soon as the magical number came up, my phone's ringing, Andrew's ready to come on your show. Well, you're on the front foot here because I wasn't aware of that fact and I was actually going to come here in here and, and just set the record straight that I, I feel a little embarrassed because, um, you know, I thought I'd be a little bit higher up in the pecking <laughs> order and here I am, what, number 75 guest. So we've actually gone through 74 more important people than me and then, you're right, you come in here and very, very casually slipped in the fact that it is now 20 million, which is impressive. I, I'd like to That's see good some numbers. Ev- I'd love to see some evidence of that. But the only evidence is, is I sit in a very, very nice studio. Yes. There's no doubt about that. It's not yours. It's the, no. the good people here at Triple M that obviously borrowing it to you. But then mm. I think, how can 
a man that's got 20 million <laughs> downloads start the arrangement here with an elastic band around the microphone? We've now, had a couple of technical hitches. I, I'd suggest if you've got 20 million downloads and you have to use elastic bands, you talk about my people, your people need to have a good outlook on themselves because you should not be operating with elastic bands with 20 million downloads. It's not good enough, really, is it? It's, it's, it's a, a cut price operation. Because I like to hit my hand on the table. Yes. And I'm a little bit, I might lose an eye if that thing shoots off the microphone and hits me in the pork pie. You know what the worst thing is? It happened quite embarrassingly about four months ago. Oh. We're talking to Kate and Bronte Jeez. Campbell. And um, with budget constraints the way they are in the modern media, we we haven't well, had the opportunity to fix it. If you, well, but how's that pot? 20 million, you should be... Just rolling around in the loop. <laughs> doesn't happen like that. Incredible. But it uh, no, that is a remark. If it is in fact true, which I just just put a little asterisk next. To it the is time. true. If that is true, that you should be congratulated because that is extraordinary, and um, and well done. Oh, that's an amazing achievement. That is a lot of. Data. It is. That people have consumed <laughs> it is, out it there. Is. And thank you to our audience who have contributed to that number because it is where I, I was telling you at the start, yes. uh, Adam Gilchrist was the first episode that went to air. Oh. We're getting sidetracked here. And yes. after three weeks, we got our hundredth download. We cracked the champagne. We nice. took a night out. We had a yes. dinner. We thought, how good's this? So mm. it is humbling, but it's due to the guests <laughs> with more accessible agents right. that put their people I don't have people. To your people. <laughs> I have no people. That's obviously the problem. But, you uh, do not. You do not even know what a podcast is. I. I have. I know what a podcast is, of course. But, but you don't I, know how to access one. I have yet to figure out or go into that world of downloading. Now I have heard little snippets of certain podcasts. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill Simmons, we were talking about before uh, online. Whether it's Twitter, you might get a little two or three minute burst, and there apparently some really really good ones out there. But uh, now that uh, I'm aware that the Howie Games is up to 20 million. Mm. That is worthy of my attention. So well, we've had basketball on. We've had your man Luke I've Longley. Heard, and I have heard about that. I haven't heard your interview huh. with him. But, Didn't um, have a spare hour and a half at some well, stage. I Andrew did... Bogut's appeared on the show as well. Well, you're going to um, tell me how to access I this am. material. I will. And uh, I'll report back. But I look forward to going through the 74 guests <laughs> that were uh, <laughs> deemed a little bit worthier than myself. Okay. Oh, well, let's just go from right. the start. Would you put yourself above <laughs> Tim Cale? <laughs> no. Okay. No, all right. Okay. Would no. you put yourself above no. Kathy Freeman? No. Uh, no. Mark Webber? I, no. Ricky Ponting? No. Well, this is probably... No. Why are you getting called well, at this stage? there's four. <laughs> okay. So okay. I'll I be, could Adam Gilchrist. Yeah, yeah, very, very Oh, good. now your phone's on. No, well, that's a mistake. <laughs> uh, that's the great Leonard Copeland talk, calling as well. So, uh, no, but uh, no, I'm, I'm just humbled to be here in your presence. Right, as am I. As am uh, I. Because, uh, it's like I said, it should not be underestimated to your audience out there, extraordinary that 20 million people <laughs> actually jump on the dog and bone. Is it's, it on the phone? They, it's they, on the phone. They, yes, they jump on the dog and bone. And... Um, um, and and how long do the? Uh, I'm sure this is going to be edited to the shizen. No, we won't edit this. No, this edit is it. A, this is an hour and a half unedited of Andrew oh, Gaze at his finest. But you know what I it need is. To pick my game up. Then oh, I thought we were just no, jaw-jacking no, no. that it's all going to get <laughs> on the cutting room floor. Do you know? Floor. I don't want to be silly. Do you know? I think it, it, mm. it has resonated mm. because it's positive and it's motivational. Good. And it's telling the stories of people who have reached the top, which you obviously have, Gazy. But mm. it is not always a simple path. It seems no. to be a simple path, but that's not usually the case. Well. Very very rarely, in fact, uh, you don't get gifted uh, success in the sporting arenas, or, or really in any arenas. Uh, it it, ha- it comes by having very a meticulous plan, commitment, dedication, and 
uh, each and every one of those people that uh, you, you, you spoke about, and I don't know their story intimately. Well, you will when you've listened. I will. In in, in 75 of them, I'm going to have to go through quite a few, but <laughs> each and every one of them uh, would have a, a story of to say, well, they've been challenged and tested. That's it. And they've had to overcome some adversity and that desire, that willpower is really the, the difference that separates those that get there than sometimes the, the, those that don't. And that's not to say that those that don't uh, aren't faced with sometimes even more hardship, but nevertheless, it is a non-negotiable in trying to achieve the highest, and that is, of course, that le- that willpower, that determination uh, to overcome challenges that, that are constantly going to be thrown uh, in your face. And even with that, these days, I think that the challenges are even greater than what it was during my time. So I feel very, very fortunate. Uh, I think there's far, far more scrutiny on individuals. I think of someone like Ben Simmons right now. And uh, he was a prodigy, just extraordinary at high school, at, at college, and now in the NBA. Just stop you for one sec. He's been on the show. Ben Simmons has already had a go. Ben Simmons has been on the well, show. Well, as he's worthy. <laughs> okay. He is worthy. So are you above Simmons or not? N- not quite you are there. At this stage. Anyway, sorry, continue about Ben. But I'd say the scrutiny as a casual observer yeah. watching that he has to uh, endure, uh, questions about his jump shot, questions about his work ethic, questions which uh, probably based, and I say this respectfully, on those that have no idea, mm. that don't know any sort of intimate information about the work ethic, the the individual, nor do I, by the way, but uh, having been around a lot of those very, very successful people, you understand that uh, those that are making comment aren't always across all the issues. They get little snippets of information and in order to get hits, clicks or downloads, or downloads. they have to come up with some sensational uh, um Stories about clickbait. What can sometimes be relatively minor, and that brings about a lot of scrutiny. The, the number of voices that are out there, the, the distractions that are faced, and we've see, seen it very, very recently with some athletes. They say, "Well, uh, I can't deal with this. It, it, it's not worth the struggle. It, it detracts from the love of the game. All those things." So. Uh, that makes it very hard. Now, in my time, we didn't have to deal with that. Mm. We'd pick up the Herald Sun, we'd pick up the Age, and occasionally you might get a little clip. Yep. Uh, but then within a day or two, you move on and it's there. To a point where even recently in my time, when I was uh, the head coach of the Sydney Kings, I feel very proud of myself that during that time, I was able to shut down social media. You didn't look at it. Did not look at it. Now, uh I think it was because that you you know, regardless if you're doing well or you're doing poorly, that you're still going to have to confront things that that sometimes can be uncomfortable, and that makes it hard for some. And and even for myself, I just completely avoided it, so it wasn't something that I felt like I had to deal with. But it's hard you, you, these days. And even when I was the coach and we we advised the players, very very hard these days to get players just to completely ignore it. Keep away from it. It's like you're asking them to give their left kidney yeah, uh, because they're so attached to it and it's a, such an integral part of the way in which they communicate, gather information, and um, it can be very, very dangerous. I could show you my phone after a single game of Big Bash cricket. Yes. And the things you read, wh- why would someone sit at home and it, just get stuck in like that? Yes. Your man, Ben Simmons. Yes. We only had a short time with him. Mm. He's got people. 
We he, were in I, San I Francisco, no, yeah. and he, he. We joked about your people. Yes, he has got people. Well, you know, everywhere he, around him, as he should, yes. because you do need to to build your team. Yeah, and uh, it was funny because I was just with a mate downstairs, and we were talking about the Philadelphia 76ers, a good friend of mine, Brett Brown, and some of the challenges that he's facing. He's another one because he's a very dear friend of mine. I'd follow him, and sometimes you'd go on to either Twitter, which he doesn't have, or you go on to Facebook, and you see some of the comments that are horrific. Yeah, they are. They are horrific. And um, I can understand why Ben would need his people around him. But having said that, uh, this July, I think it is, he's eligible <laughs> to renegotiate his contract. Now, if he gets a max deal, it's a maximum of five years, and it's something in the order of $230 million Australian dollars. Now, wow. when you've got that level of income, yes. uh, you can afford to have a you team need, around you. You need people. And you need a team around you. So I don't think we should see that as some sort of prima donna mm. type uh, situation. It's a, more of a necessity than it is. Do you watch ballers? I have watched a few episodes, not well, a lot of it. There's a nice reason why you need a team around you, yes. as shown on that show. All right, let's get to you, Gazy. Let's get to you. Your story mm. starts before you were even here because yes. you're one of those people, whether it's lucky or unlucky, mm-hmm. depending on the way you view the world, that you are born into a family where someone's already been a dominant athlete. Absolutely. In the shape of your father, the great. Correct. The great Lindsay Gaze. Yes. And that is my privilege. That is something that I never take for granted because I was – through the lack of DNA and and being born into that environment, I learnt about sport from a very, very early age. And not only did I learn about sport, I learned about the privileges of representing your country, what it meant to him and to develop the sport to pull on a green and gold jersey. Those values were instilled in me at a very early age to a point where I can't remember not having those values. Did he go to... He played in I, the 60s. Hang on. Yes. Someone tried to tell me the other day, he played footy at yeah, the did. Melbourne Olympics? Yes, he did. Footy. So he played in the 66 basketball in the 60s, 64 and 68. Then he coached 72, 76, 80 and 84 Olympics. Wow. Prior to that in this great city in Melbourne, and as you know, that each host uh, city is able to put on an exhibition sport. Yes. And my dad and his brother played in most – he played a bit for the um, Melbourne Football Club in the right. under-19s in the reserves, yep. but he, he mainly played his footy career in the amateurs and the association. And he tells a story, but believe it or not, he actually got paid more for playing with the amateurs than he did in the association. Right. But he played for Paran, and in the exhibition game at 1956 Olympics, they had an all-star team of the amateurs playing against the association, <laughs> and he and his brother were selected to play. Now, the only sort of side bit to that, he was there, pulled on the jersey, went out there, never got in the game. Ah. So, but he was there. At the MCG? At the MCG, yes. And, and he, so he played in the game. Actually, I don't even know if it was played at the MCG. Right. I think it was actually played across the road. Uh, I'll stand corrected, but, but he was, wherever the exhibition game was played, he was in it. Huh. And his brother, who was a better footy player, Barry, he actually played. But they both were on the team and he got the jersey. He was all part of it, but never actually took, to the, took a, a mark or a kick. So why are you, and I didn't realise this till I did the mm. extensive research required to get your 20 million downloads, why <laughs> yes. are you Andrew Barry Casson? Yeah, well, Gaze? Barry is named after his eldest brother. Right. Casson uh, is part of a... Um, OAM too, I must admit. A, 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 a challenging family environment that my dad had to deal with. Right. His dad wasn't around a lot, 
And um, I think it's got something to do with the family history of that name because of his dad and his mum. There are some variations. But how, whether it's through tradition or some other reason, and it's funny that I don't even really know the exact details, yeah. but um, only the boys in the Gay's family get to carry the name Casson. So we've all got it. My cousins. Have you passed it on? And yep, uh, it, it's it's Mason, Andrew, Casson, Gay. So we do carry it on, but it's to do with I think uh, a period in my dad's life that was not easy. Okay. Um, with his relationship with with his dad was very very challenging. And did you meet your separ- paternal grandfather? No, or not? no, I didn't. Okay. Uh, he died when I was about ten or eleven, and um, I can still remember the occasion because it it, it did create some family challenges because of to say, well, how much respect do we do we provide to this this guy that, that wasn't around a long time and okay. when he was around perhaps wasn't as good as he should have been to his wife and to his kids. So we're, we're doing this in South Melbourne. Yes. Which is a stone's throw from where a you... A good driver. Since you were a young bloke. That's right. It's, in um, the basketball stadium? Yeah. Well, was the happened? house at the basketball stadium? Yeah. And what it was, um, <laughs> back in the, the late 50s, the great senator for this, Senator Kennelly was right. his name, yeah. and there was these old Commonwealth Army storage facilities uh, that were down there around near the Albert Park Lake. Mm-hmm. And the Albert Park Lake back then was Swampland. It's not this pristine thing that was there. And he had this uh, beautification uh, agenda to fix up the area. And what he decided to do was uh, uh, allocate those facilities to sport. So uh, back then they transformed one of them to uh table tennis, one of them to badminton and one of them to basketball and later on, a few years later, they actually built another facility which came to the squash stadium then they built the Harry Trot Oval <laughs> at the back and then of course the Albert Park Golf Course is is, is right there as well and basketball and their, their wisdom, when they were converting those old army warehouse storage facilities, they decided to build a manager's residence <laughs> that was attached to this stadium that was wedged in between the, the badminton and the basketball <laughs> so from the time I was born until the time I was about 13 when we left that house, uh, I had a nine-court basketball stadium as my backyard. But I also had all these other sporting uh, facilities that were at my disposal. And um, some of the things we used to see, because it was wedged in between the basketball and the, the badminton, where the people are coming down to have a dart, where the people are coming down to have a few froffies, or whether they're out there in their car engaging in some activities that perhaps a, a young 10-year-old was very curious about. Bit amorous, were they? Correct. Uh, whether the, the, the joint was... Basketball stadium was getting robbed and my dad getting up, he used to have this starter's gun. So it wasn't a... It wasn't a, had no bullets, Lindsay. but you could go, bang! So he used to have this starter's gun. So... Uh, literally, the, the joint, the alarm would go off. He'd get pull on the uh, the dressing gown. Away we go in there, and um, it was f- somewhat frightening time yes. some of the time. But uh, and he'd fire the starter pistol. He'd have this starter because we used to say, "What do you got this gun? It's not a gun. It's a starter's pistol that he used to have. That just go bang to make sure there's a loud noise because you know, it, it, with back in uh, those times, you just weren't sure what they if they were carrying. And I thought. Are you an idiot? I mean, you don't even mess with that type of stuff. So, it um, fortunately there, there was some quite hair raising times, but uh, uh, not none which where I would have considered life threatening. But I was probably sheltered from that. I still remember though being there, uh, and one morning it was about four o'clock in the morning, and my sister Janet 
got up and, 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 and wakes me up. And I'm 12 years of age. And goes, Andrew, the police are racing cows out the front of our house. And I'm like, oh, she's lost it. Yeah, she's, she's sleepwalking or something. And she goes to Dad and wakes up, Dad, 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 the, the police are racing cows. So we there's this big brew. So we go out to the front of the house, look out the front window, and sure enough, there's 20 or 30 cattle <laughs> out the front with all these policemen there. And what had happened, we found out, was that along King's Way, mm. a cattle truck had tipped over. Oh. And what they were doing, because there was the badminton and the basketball, they were herding him into that area. <laughs> and our house was sort of the backstop with a fence out the front. So they were herding him in there to try and get all the cattle together. Uh, you know, so, and, and a time when the, the squash center had burnt down. So we were there and, and we go out and we see all this smoke billowing out of the squash centre and that caught fire and all the, the fire brigade, I can still remember being, uh, although it was probably two or 300 metres away, thinking, oh, this joint's going to burn me. So we were at the front of our house and I'm crying like a 12-year-old because I was 12, <laughs> yeah. thinking the whole world's about to end. Uh, so you saw, heard and did some things that were not normal, but what it did provide me was an environment that was very unique because every single day, I was since I was born. I was exposed to basketball, whether I was crawling around, huh. pushing a ball around, or just taking shots. Uh, when you come home from school, walking into the office, whatever it may be, uh, all those things were there for me. So I am absolutely convinced that if it wasn't, if it was not for that environment, then I would have would not have had anywhere near the opportunities that were presented to me later in life because. Uh, I wasn't blessed with great athleticism or any of those things. I, I, I was able to be introduced and learn the game at a very early age, and that was really the only advantage, a significant advantage, but that was the only advantage I really had. Did you play with your dad? Did he play basketball yeah. with you when you were a kid? Yeah, absolutely. It must be a fond memory. Yeah, I, I still remember a game. <laughs> we were playing, and it was in the lower divisions. It was like the second division, and I would have been 13, 14, Playing on the back course, it was court seven, playing a senior game and playing with my dad. And my dad... On the team? We're playing together. (laughs) So I was very, very young and and I can still remember him getting shitty at me because um, I I threw a pass or something and he he stubbed his finger or something and he was like, that's, you know, pass the ball in the right way, Cody, in the heat of the the game. Um, So I did have some experiences of him very, very early on, but he was... Very much a coach then, and, and like I said, was playing in the Melbourne Tigers seconds or whatever it may be, just for his own desire to, to want to keep playing. But um, yeah, had those opportunities with him. O- on that very topic, yes. sadly because you're one of the few people in Australia that hasn't listened to this show, Andrew. It, it won't be after today, <laughs> Good though. boy, good boy. Yes. Um, I have two beautiful children. Right. Uh, who I tell them about the guest. Yes. And they like to ask a question of the guest. Oh, good. Now, you get my son. Now, yes. you, our long-term listeners will know, he mm-hmm. woke up when he was two and a half, Mac, and said, Dad, I want to change my name to the Big Penguin. Oh, the Big Penguin. The Big Penguin is the way he rolls. What's the Big Penguin in relation to? I, I've no idea. Right. Still no one knows. But he I, still I like it, though. Caught. You know, he he yeah. rolls it. But his question relates to you mm-hmm. and your father. That yes. uh, He wanted to come up with this one. They get no. They just right. are told about just... the guest. Then we record the question. Right. So this is you from the Big Penguin. Hi, Gazy Big Penguin here. My dad's teaching me to surf. He thinks he's pretty good. But I think next year I'll be a better surfer than him. 
When did you first beat your dad in basketball? <laughs> well, that is beautiful. Thank you. That is beautiful, and good on him. You've obviously taught him well because he's 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 put that together very very nicely. So so congratulations. But um, I can't really remember a time when. Uh, I started to beat him. We always used to play uh, when we were younger, mm. whether it's just shooting games or one-on-one. Uh, but I can't remember the time that I say, well, I'm officially better than him. Now, I was a little bit different that from a very – I was probably 15 turning 16 when I started to play senior basketball and he'd had some knee problems and back problems and, and those types of things and he was already playing at the lowest levels, lower level. So I got exposed and had the opportunity to compete against some really, really talented people at a very, very early age. Yep. So he was probably a bit removed from playing back then. Now, as we speak, and my dad's 83, he's got glaucoma and he can't run out of sight in a dust storm. He's struggles himself around, if you asked him right now, he would still say that he could beat me right now. So that's, that's how he rolls. And and when I say beat me, at anything. Right. So not just, not just basketball. Right, right. At anything. Now, the unfortunate thing, he probably could. So that is a genuine setback on my behalf. But that's uh, that's the way he is. He, he's a highly competitive man. Uh, but in a very humble and respectful way. Did he teach you, which we will get to eventually, yes. to me, the climax of your story, did he teach you a love of the Olympic Games due to his massive involvement in it? Yeah, absolutely. And he's uh, learning about playing for Australia and also what it means to represent your country at the Olympics. And above and beyond that, he was very big on the spirit of the Games. He's one that is, is determined and is ruthless at trying to win as anyone but he has this incredible perspective about the bigger picture and saying success is not always going to be judged on whether you win the gold medal that he is very much engaged in um, about competing sharing developing relationships building those bonds one of the proudest things that he always says is that through his basketball experiences no matter what continent in the world that he was plonked on. So someone alien came, took him out, threw him on any continent in this great place we called the world, mm. and he believes through basketball he can pick up a phone and he'd have someone to call, a friend to call on. Wow. And now he says winning is great, but those types of relationships are as important, if not more important, because winning is fleeting. And, uh, yes, we want to do it, those incredible highs that you get, but not everyone gets to experience it, but that doesn't mean that you're not successful or that you haven't uh, fulfilled a lot of your your goals. So um, because of that, I think that those types of things were instilled in me as well. And a lot of people will say, well, you're never going to make it with that type of attitude unless you are absolutely win at all costs, brutal. It's not about – it's all about winning – uh, then you're probably not, a get, not going to get there. Now, I don't subscribe to that theory at all. But I do understand uh, because of the, the brutal nature of sport and the commitment that you've got to have and that ruthlessness that, that sometimes needs to be there. But I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Mm. I don't believe that, you, that just by um, having that type of attitude that that's going to guarantee success anyway. And in fact, I think you're going to be very, very challenged if that's how the only way you're going to judge your involvement in sport. 
were you always going to be a basketball at school? Were you thinking about basketball or were you thinking about school? I, I was thinking about sport. Right. So I, I love playing footy. I love playing cricket. I uh, followed the Hawthorne Football Club from the day I can remember. Arnie Dolly was the one. She brought me a, a, a Hawthorne footy jumper, those long sleeve, scratchy, you know, mm, those ones, mm. the, the woolen the ones. The woolen ones. Long sleeve. Had harder number twenty six on the back, the big plastic number twenty. I can still <laughs> remember it as clear as day. And she was the one that that, that converted me or made me a, a Hawthorne supporter. And it was very early on. I might have been five or six. I can't remember a day in my life where I wasn't a Hawthorne footy player. A Hawthorne footy player. <laughs> I wish a Hawthorne footy fan. Yeah. Um, and because of that, I had gr- a great love for the game. And so if if you had to describe yourself, you just mentioned footy and cricket. Yep. Describe yourself as a footballer compared to any professional footballer. Who would you choose? Come on. There's like, no time for modesty. Like as in to say, well, who do you, who do you think your game closely yes. resembles? Yes. Oh, jeez. Yes. yes, come on. Well, I wanted to be, when I was growing up, Peter Knights. Right. Sent uh, out back. You can jump. Uh, had a bit of a leap about me. Um, and But 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 I guess through the DNA, and you saw it in my basketball, I loved to score. Mm. So uh, um, uh, Sidney Moncrief was the one, right. number six, back then taking the grab. He was there and, and, and people weren't necessarily all that glowing about his level of commitment and determination, but <laughs> the fact that he could kick, goals. kick a bag. Um, and, of course, lethal uh, was – so I tried to – but I think in those ones, if I was to say, well, who do you more closely resemble? They were the ones I, I sort of wanted to be. Yes. But probably who I more closely resembled – Forget the attitude. I'm just talking about the game. It's yep. probably Don Scott. Right. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. Now, I'm not ashamed of that. Okay. But I'm just saying I'm trying to draw yeah. on someone. And then as a, as a cricketer, give me a similar well, comparison. I, at primary school, uh, they have the team vote of who's going to be captain. Yep. So uh, whether it's a popularity contest or not, I, I got the nod. Are you a skipper? And I, I want to be skipper. And although I didn't. Physically had the attributes. Uh, I wanted to be a wiki keeper. The great six Rod Marsh. Six wiki. That's it. Oh, come on, the great Rod it. Marsh was right. there. So, so I said, well, I'm captain. I get to pick. Right. I'm keeper. Okay. <laughs> Let me tell you, there was more buys in that first game. We're playing I, We're playing against Graham Street. Graham Street Primary playing Eastern Road Primary. Yeah. Uh, Again, out the back, Harry Trotover was there, but at the McRobb School, right. they used to have the, the concrete pitch down the middle of the – so we, we'd play there, play more by because not only did I uh, – oh, this was just something I'd envisage, envisage – I'd never kept before, not even in practice. But I'm the captain. I'll decide what's going on. I had the safety out the back. Mate, the backstop? The, the backstop was was in a full lather by the time after the second over because I could not catch a cop. I could not do anything out there. And it was kind of one of those embarrassing moments that the realisation halfway through the first dig, I said, this is not for me. So um, we got we got through it, of course, but um, but never really took it. I played for I played uh, for East Malvern. Okay. In, I can still remember my mum. She she spent a week and a half knitted me, hand knitted the jumper, the white jumper with the blue and red here. Oh, just so good it on you, mum. Like, mum was a, a champion, and um, uh, only only lasted two 
Two digs though, two two games, not even two games, because they back then you'd play the same team, you'd bat one, and then the next morning Saturday, yeah, one you had to, I had to get up at, at, at six o'clock in the morning, and Darren Cookman, my mum said, well, good luck to you, that you're on your own here, so Darren Cookman, mate, we were in great, he, Cookie, Cookie, he lived up the street, so I'd have to get up, walk myself there, then go in there, and then stand out in the field, can be a cruel game cricket, standing out in the field for a couple of David Gowers yeah. in the morning in your bucket, yeah. and I. I said, you know what? I don't think this is for me. I just prefer to watch it on the telly. Back to Gazy the Guru in a moment. Next up on the Howie Games, our first episode recorded in front of a live audience, featuring Olympic silver medalist in the sport of BMX, Sam Willoughby, and his wife, Elise, also an Olympic silver medalist. Sam tragically suffered a spinal injury pursuing the sport he loved, and since that accident, Sam has gone on to achieve more in life than he ever did on his bike, but she's been a pretty difficult journey. So you wake up after surgery and like, what happens, mate? Just, I was still paralysed. I mean... Did someone come and tell you? It was, it was probably just after when Elise had got there that a doctor finally came around and that was when I heard them use the word paralysis for the first time. And um, they said, we don't hear you. I was kind of good about it in a way. He said, there's no guarantees at this point, but... The, the future, we have to let you know that the future of paralysis is likely. So what do you say to Elise at this point? Um, I broke down and I said, you're not marrying me, you're not marrying a vegetable. And I regret calling myself a vegetable because I think that's it's not fair to a lot of people and in worse positions and even people in my position, but just, yeah, just I just felt guilt at the time, honestly, that I'd let this thing of, you know, BMX and success, I felt at that point in the moment of it all that it had, I'd let it overtake me. That's Sam and Elise Willoughby coming up on Thursday, September 12. Alrighty, back to Gazy. There's so much to talk about with you, and I can't keep you here for three hours. So I just want to – you started, as you said, playing with the men at 15 or 16. You started playing for the Melbourne Tigers. Yep. You ended up playing basketball for Seton Hall. I did. And I bring that up because that's the first time I ever watched basketball. Because I reckon in the – you're going to have to correct me here. 89 it was. NCAA final. Final did, four. Did seven put the final they on here in did. Australia? They absolutely did. And I can remember watching you run around yep. your blue, and it blew my mind because he was this Australian guy. Correct. And that's the effect that sport can have on children. Um, and I was like, wow, this guy can go and play overseas. It's incredible. Yeah. What was it like as a – you're a 22, I was 23, turning 23. It was 1989. Yeah, so, 23 at So the time. you head over yeah. there to play basketball and be in college. It, mm. Okay. Was it like Animal House or not? It, there is an element to that. <laughs> right. Now, Seton Hall, I might add, is a, is a smaller school. But the, the, the difference was I was a little bit older, mm-hmm. okay. More experienced. And, and, and more experienced. And also um, – because it is a small school, it's in South Orange, New Jersey, which is right on the border of Newark. Now, I love the place. Uh, I love the United States, but... There's a but here. But if you've ever flown to New York and landed in Newark and done a drive yeah, around... I have, actually. It, it, it's, 
It's not the armpit of the world, but it's 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 got a bit of a stench about it. It's not right? Manhattan, is it? No. Now it might have changed since then, but I, I still remember arriving at Seton Hall on the, my first day there. They said, "Now listen, when and it's a gated school. There's a big wall around it. About eight thousand students at the time." And I remember the coach, PJ Calissimo, saying, giving me the rundown and saying, now, listen, as you come into the building here and the gates here, if you go right, it's Maplewood, it's it's beautiful. Mm. It's, it's clearly reeks of wealth. You turn left and they said, listen, unless you've got at least, at least five or six of your teammates that were born and bred in New York, ah. don't go there. And I'm thinking, oh, gee, this is a bit odd. But I took the advice and didn't go there. And a few weeks in, I went and bought a $400 Dodge Omni. And I had this car. And I oh, will go for go Because you're only a 30-minute drive from downtown New York. So I remember driving through Newark, and you start to get a, a vision of the boarded up, the community, very urban-type environment. And uh, I'd actually time it so you wouldn't have to stop at a red light. It was... It was a very, very wow. frightening type environment to, to, to be around. Now, it's probably changed a lot since then, but it was nevertheless a, a, an example, let's say, of, of just the diversity that you can go from extreme wealth to incredible poverty uh, within a space of a couple of K. Uh, and here's this prestigious school right smack bang in the middle of it. But um, So we all lived on campus because we had to. And, uh, and, and yeah, there was every Thursday night was uh, pub night on right. campus and it got rowdy. Right. So, were kegs, et cetera, like we see in the movies? like you see in the movies. Right. And uh, did you sort of uh, partake in the festivities? Well, I was very dedicated to my craft. <laughs> of course and, you were. And uh, was very keen to do well uh, competing. So uh, let's just say I was a casual observer <laughs> okay. from the outside looking in, mm-hmm. but saw enough of it to say, well, gee whiz. Maybe I should have looked into this when I was <laughs> 18 right. and I thought I might be able to, let's say, enjoy the experience okay, okay. in a different way. There was a, 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 It must have been such an incredible time because when I was having a look into having a chat with you, uh, there's an ESPN show. Gaze, Ramos. It is. And the Pirates. It's incredible. A, and I had a look at that. Yeah. Um, so just briefly explain to me yes. what it means to make, and what is the NCAA final? Yes. Um, and then still, a, still, how many years later they're mm. debating whether there was a foul or not a foul. But but what was it was like? No and debate. what was the? Well, we'll get to that. There. What was the? <laughs> what what is the tournament pinnacle? And what's the feeling around the school when a small school reaches that? No, it's extraordinary. And Seton Hall, even right across the country, very few people have heard of Seton Hall. We're in one of the biggest conferences at the time called the Big East. Georgetown, Syracuse, St John's, Villanova, uh, the Providence, all these big basketball uh, schools, massive basketball schools, and uh, we were back then. There was only nine teams in the conference, and we were tipped eighth in our conference. And huh. the way the system works over there, there's all the schools are divided into conferences, and there's about 300 first division schools, and we we're in this conference. Although it's a strong conference, finish tipped to finish very, very low. Just uh, in your conference? Just in our conference. So it was one that um, there wasn't great expectations, but I can still re- I went straight from Seoul Olympics to Seton Hall. So your second second Olympics, Seoul? Yeah. Right. So I, I, I went there and um, I remember the time when we first played some pickup games because they're very 
regimented of when you can actually start practice. So we were playing pickup games, and I'm looking around and saying, my God, if this is the eighth-ranked team right. in the conference, this is outrageous. This conference is must be a NBA standard. Because, and you've just come from the Olympics. And I've just come point. from the Olympics. Right. But you could just tell the talent that was floating around. So clearly that was a mistake. And um, uh, But to be there in a uh, – you've got to qualify for the NCAA tournament by winning – or being first automatic qualifiers as if you win your conference, and then they they will look at the strength of the conferences, and we actually ended up finishing third in our conference, uh, but still got an NCAA bid, and went through. It's sixty four teams make the NCAA tournament, and you, you, it's sudden death the whole way through. The whole way through, it's sudden death, and we were in the west, so we were we were put in the western region of, the, of that, and so we we were on the road for three weeks. So uh, we, we, we kept winning. We, along the way, we beat Indiana, gave Indiana their worst ever NCAA um, defeat in the history of the NCAA tournament. Uh, we beat UNLV. We beat Duke in the semifinal. Uh, Christian Leitner, there's a great yeah. uh, 30 for 30 documentary there on is. him. They also had Danny Ferry. Uh, Mike Krzyzewski's the coach. Beat them in the semifinal, and then unfortunately lost to to uh, Michigan in the in the grand what we would call the grand final. So before you get to, to the the final, the yep. grand final, how big therefore? Oh, it's massive. Uh, how big is the athlete on campus when he's in that basketball team? Oh, it's huge. Right. So there's a lot of love for Gazy around oh, the campus. My glory filled days. <laughs> it is just is it ridiculous? So it's like we see. Yeah, because particularly for us, because in the school that I was in, really small school, we didn't have a football team. Right. We had a baseball team that did, does okay, but they never had the same sort of profile uh, as the um, as the basketball team. And, and basketball was the marquee sport of, of Seton Hall at the time. So although there's not a great student base, around New Jersey, we were very much a, a big deal. Uh, but uh, throughout the rest of the country, they would have no – because it's a funny name, Seton Hall. I remember we were in, out west uh, for the final, for the NCAA tournament, and everywhere you go, Seton Hall, where's Seton Hall? You know, they had no idea what we were about. And for me at the time, it was not like it is today. There weren't that many internationals playing, and because we're a team that got through to the final, this the attention that was given to me was well – Beyond what I deserve, and you would have been an oddity as an Australian in America at that stage. Yeah, well, because well, like I said, there's, there wasn't many international players. I think uh, Vlahovic was over there. Luke Longley was over there. Um, there may have been a couple of others, but only a handful. Whereas if you look at today, I think we have, if you combine men and women, over three hundred wow. Australians playing college basketball. You know, we we had three or four. But that's not just because of it's Australia. It's just that back then the same uh, amount of attention given to international basketball and the schools just weren't recruiting we international robbed? players. Lost by a point. We were robbed. Well, it was. It's an in- interesting one because uh, we we play. We got to the final. Seattle, Washington, for tonight's national championship game between the Michigan Wolverines and the Seton Hall Pirates. And the game went to overtime, and with. Oh, three seconds to go in overtime. Ramil Robinson for Michigan had the ball and was driving down, was drove into the paint in the keyway and passed it out, and a foul was called. Michigan's ball. They've got an opportunity here now to win it. They've got to hurry. Five seconds. Robinson goes in. Foul. Foul call with three seconds. And because of that, they were in the bonus, 
and sent Ramil Robbins to, to the free throw line. And well, the last three seconds took about four minutes with all the timeouts. Well, what happened was is that uh, we thought, you know, we were in a solid position. And at the time, in the heat of the moment, I didn't think too much of it. Was it a dodgy call? Wasn't I didn't really think about it. Uh, my recollection, though, was, was that timeout. So what we did is we called a timeout to ice the shooter, it's called, because Ramil Robinson, I think, was a 56% free throw shooter. <laughs> Not great. Right. Okay, and don't forget, you're now in a place where there's – 45,000 people at the event, a venue, uh, outside of the Super Bowl, I think it's the most watched TV event, or at the time, huh. it was the most watched TV sporting event uh, in the nation. Wow. Uh, the, 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 the media scrutiny, all the attention that's given to that, clearly there's a bit of pressure. And I can still remember this, and I, and I, I wrote about this in my book, one of the things that happened is we went out there and we lined up for the free throw. And the crowd is going nuts. There's the TV cameras and the photographers all underneath the basket. And I'm looking around and I'm thinking, oh, we need to try and ice this. And I, I was the, the last guy waiting to, to, to come in for the rebound. And uh, I remember looking at, oh, hey, Ramil, have a look at this. Have a look at the cameras out here. You wouldn't want to stuff <laughs> this up, would you? You know, and you could see him. He was just trying to ignore everything. And it was going through the, the – you could see the, the wheels turning in his head. And just for a fleeting moment, there was something in my head that had this incredible compassion for what Ramil Robinson was going through because this is this is a pivotal, life-changing moment that he misses this first free throw and they lose this game. This is something that you, you can't erase. Ever. And this is something that is going to be extremely influential in this young man at the time's life. And this compassion in me, in my own head, somehow or other, I, I can remember having this sense of thinking, well, you know what, it's not the end of the world. If he just makes the first, we go to another overtime and things are okay. Let's see what happens on the free throw. Michigan leads it. Long pass, Walker and Green battle. Walker fires up. It's over. Michigan has won a national championship. And for the third time in the last eight games, it has been decided by one point. The Wolverines win an NCAA title over Seton Hall, a tough opponent all the way. Now, history says he goes up, knocks them both down, and they win a national title. Yeah. My time again... Bloody hell, I wish he had missed the first one. <laughs> but at the, the heat of the moment when he was there... It's good compassion from you. It, well, it is because you, you cannot describe the, the atmosphere that, that, that he was in there. And never after the game, I, I'd never watched a replay, never seen a replay. I'd seen little snippets here and there, but never watched the game, never just moved on. And it was... Five, five years ago, whenever it was, six years ago, when the 25th anniversary of that, uh, they came in, they, the, the Seton Hall did this documentary on the, not the one that you're talking about, mm. there was this other documentary on that. And I remember they sent a, they interviewed me and we talked about it and they eventually sent me a DVD of the finished product and in it, it had that last play. And I'd been carrying it for 25 years to say, oh, I have a piece here, these things happen. <laughs> But 25 years later, watching the actual call that put Ramil Robinson to the line, the foul. I was way, way more irate 
just bitter, angry, 25 years later than I was at the time. And it was um, it was a hard pill to swallow because it was clearly an incorrect call. And and that's a, that's a tough one. You think, well, would your life have been changed? What would it mean? Made, made it? Now, I've rationalised it. wouldn't made any difference to me at all other than the fact we would have been an, an NCAA champion and, and that does mean a lot. But from my personal standpoint... I love the experience, loved every minute of it, not bitter about losing it, but just 25 years later, very, very upset that that call was the thing that cost us from winning the title. You had the chance, Gazy, and you obviously had a massive impact in Australia and yep. you're a seven-time well, MVP. Well, I think not, I get way, way more credit than what oh, I think seven, is worthy. Seven-time seven time MVP and scoring records and um, a couple of titles um, – which we'll touch on, but mm. basketball allowed you to go and play in some amazing places. It did. Including, I was 91, yep. you went to Italy. Mm-hmm. How do I pronounce that? Udine. Udine. Yeah. Tell me one short story <laughs> about how basketball <laughs> is different in Udine. Oh, well, it was an eye-opener because I'd heard a lot about it, but just the passion that the fans have for the game. Some incredible incredible things happened to me uh, when I was there in, uh, in, in Udine in that I remember – Second or third game in, uh, we're on the road and the way in which the fans had start to go off and they'd always have these police everywhere at the games and we're not accustomed to that here. No. I mean, when I say police, I'm talking 50 to 100 police officers. Right. At a game, a bar, I'm like, Jesus, and they're, they're carrying... Not starters pistols. They're not starters pistols. <laughs> they are carrying heavy artillery. Right. So you're looking at this and thinking, gee, this is a bit different. And um, and during the game when uh, a bad call is made and you're on the road and just the piffing of coins on the floor... Onto so the court. They'd be throwing stuff onto the court and, and the, you have to call a, sta- a stop to the game and there was these perspex... Um, shields behind each of the benches and we'd all run over and we'd stand there and, and so we wouldn't get hit by all these coins and then the rest, would be, they'd be calling for calm, calm, calm and then two or three minutes later that that, that would all settle down and because of that they, they in, tried to enforce these rules and, and in one of the games it was our home game and even then you had to be careful because the fans get a little bit upset with the um, the officials. They'll do the same. They'll be chucking coins on the floor. And one of our games, that the fans got a little irate, and they someone in the the stands threw down this. It was only paper, this big ball of paper, and it's come down. And the the physio of the op- opposition team, it's gone whack, and, it, and it's hit him on the head. Now it was a bit of paper. And I'm sure it didn't get hurt, but he went down like a soccer player, like a European soccer player. Like a Euro- <laughs> he went down, withering, rolling around on the floor. So they call a stop to the game. They they cart him off, and I'm thinking, oh yeah, let's get on with the game, no problems. Uh, the next week they had this tribunal or something, and they declare that because your fans are misbehaving. We suspend your court. So for the next two home games, we're not allowed to play at home. We, we, we were like an hour and a half from Treviso. So we had to go play there with no fans. So no. We, no one's allowed in the venue. It's just the two teams and the officials, and that's it. So no fans. It's like a penalty to wow. the team for this thing, uh, for this happening. So... It's been a while where, you know, you might play to small crowds where there might be a couple of hundred, 
but to no one <laughs> in the stands. Uh, and, and and it was, you know, a little different to, to, to have that type of experience. So that that's Italy. In 95, mm. you went to Greece and played for the boys at... Apollon Patros. Apollon Patra. <laughs> right, Loved right. It. What? Uh, tell me it. about them. No, it was fantastic. Really enjoyed the experience. And um, is is are you coached in Greek? Yeah, my my guy couldn't speak English. The, so what happens when you get to the huddle? You you hope that the the um, the assistant coach could speak a little bit of English, <laughs> uh, and then one of my teammates on the team could speak English. So you, you're getting things second or third hand. Chinese whispers. Now, usually, a lot of the times, if it's just about a specific play or something, they use the whiteboard and we go through it. But the thing about both in Italy and in Greece, uh, there's no smoking restrictions <laughs> in the venues. They might have... So you are in a... I'm sure it's taken at least 10 years off my wife playing those two years. You are playing in thick, dense smoke most of the time. And here's, I, I remember this one game. We were coming down, and my coach was he's a smoker as well, and, and he was there. But uh, he tried it. A training, like, if we, okay, five-minute water break, he'd be on the dart <laughs> chugging on a Marlboro on the sideline. <laughs> one of these games, we're in this crucial moment. I look over. During the actual game, He's on the darts, having a having a chug of a Marlboro. Mid game, mid game. Now, even though it was sort of times hadn't changed much here, but it certainly those sorts of rules had kicked in, in in the sporting environment. So, all these types of things make it different, and and you're there. Same thing. I remember at our um, uh, one of our road games, we're going in, and just the abuse and the and the um, the missiles, and, and in Greece. They actually warned me because, unlike Italy that just chucked the coins, apparently in Greece they said, just be careful because what they do, they get their lighters and they actually light up the coins. Oh, heat them up. Heat them up. Oh, give it a bit extra zing. <laughs> a little extra stinger. Oh, come if you'd on. have to. No. Come on, the Greeks. Mate, that's how it was. Now, it sounds really. And when you're first there, it's a little frightening. It's a little unusual. Yes. But the more you're there and a part of it, you come to respect the passion and provided it never broke out in violence. In both Italy and Greece, the flare rule did not apply. Indoors, <laughs> I can't tell you how many times the flare would go up and f- you can only just see the flare because that's <laughs> thick, dense smoke. From the marvellous. <laughs> you'd see the flare. I mean, this sort of stuff when you're not used to it, in a small gym that may hold about 3,000 people, and a flare goes off and they start singing and chanting, you start to go, mate, if this joint goes up, if this catches fire, we're all in trouble here. But it didn't seem to phase them. And after you get used to it, you get to appreciate the passion and really respect it and, and admire the, the atmosphere they create. Before we get to you having a NBA championship ring, and congratulations, and I know in some ways it's something you never bring up, no. and we'll get to that. But, Gazy, just to be serious for a moment, hmm. it'll only be a moment, You, wherever you play, yeah. I think you're the second leading scorer ever in the history of the Olympics at basketball, which is an amazing well, feat. And I'm not trying to be humble or downgrade myself. The biggest advantage we had is that we always qualified. Hang on. We'll, we'll get mm. to that. What, what I'm trying to ask you is you dominated mm. the basketball here. You did well at Seton Hall. You did fantastically mm. in Europe. You had a couple of cracks in the NBA. Mm-hmm. Did you have the talent to succeed? Well, in, And if mm. so, how come 
With the grass posterous pet, how can you yeah. play more? Well, it was a different era, and again, there was this transformation going on where international players were getting far greater recognition. Back when I was there in the early 90s, there was only a couple, there was only a handful of Playing with in the NBA, yep. period. Um, and so who were you? Who, uh, originally, you were over there with. Early on, I was with the Washington Bullets, they were called at the time. Seven now games. called the Wizards. Seven games to the Bullets. Yeah. It was a two, two 10 day contracts. It was towards the end of the season, and they weren't making the finals. Uh, and for me, it was just a chance to go over there and experience it. And, and did you feel you were good enough? Yeah. Well, that's the only thing I got out of it. And it's not something that I. People make their own judgments, and, and, and it's up to them. But, but you're the only one that knows. From my standpoint, I got great peace of mind from that experience because you go over there, you play, and you understand more about the system. And in, and within myself, I got a, a great sense that, hey, you know what? Whether these opportunities continue or don't, I feel at peace in mind to say, well, <laughs> in the right set of circumstances, I feel like I can play at this level and contribute to some extent. Cool. But I also thought that not just for me, many players that were that, – could get these opportunities, could do quite well. It's about being in the right place, the right time, the right organisation, all those things. Now, I was never good enough to say, well, I could play on any team. Some players, you're saying, no matter what team, you could play on any team, you are just good enough. No, that wasn't me. But in the right set of circumstances, then I think I could, I can contribute. Well, I believe I could. That was in my own head. Um, but that's not for me. I never feel comfortable about talking about those experiences. The only one real major regret, and you say those sliding door moments, you say, well, should I have taken this opportunity? Because because of those things that we spoke about earlier with my dad and my boyhood dreams was always about playing for Australia. The Olympics. We, unlike it is today, you can't just pick up your phone and watch a game of basketball. You can't do... The best I'd do when I was growing up, if I got a Sports Illustrated that was six or seven months old, you'd read about it, you weren't exposed to the game as much as um, we are these days. But the moment that probably things that I look back on um, and say, well, what could have been was more in 1990. And I went to a Seton Hall and the commissioner of the whole um, Big East Conference was a guy called Dave Gavitt. And after that period, Dave Gavitt, I can't remember the exact years when it was, but he moved on and became the general manager or something of the Boston Celtics. And he was really good friends with my dad. And there was a period there where we were playing the season here in Australia and he called up and said, listen, and spoke to my dad and said, listen, I want to get Andrew into our camp. I'm pretty sure huh. we can find a spot for him. Um, but he's got, got to go through the tryout processes and and those types of things. Uh but for me, it was like, hang on, Larry Bird plays for the Celtics. You know, Kevin McHale's in the Celtics. There's all these things. And to me, it was never realistic. As much as it was real, I never felt that it was realistic. And I was so focused on the Melbourne Tigers. We just started to become more professional. We're doing well. The game was going through an Bananas. unbelievable period yep. here. It was exciting to be a part of. And... For me, I made the choice to say, no, I don't want to go through that, 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 that process. And I'm just happy here, continue to grow and be a part of it because I may have lacked a bit of self-belief to think that, well, this is something that I could actually contribute to. What and, would you tell yourself now? To with- tell myself now, uh, 
I don't regret it, but I do have a period to say what would have happened. Mm. And that's it's not that it's hard to live with, but it is something that you think back on and say, well, should I have just thrown and had a go at it? Should I have done that? Should I have embraced that opportunity that was being gifted to me? And it was a privileged opportunity. I was incredibly honoured and perhaps even just, like I said, within myself, it's not something that I've spruiked or promoted or, or anything like that because it was coming through Dave Gavitt who was speaking to my dad and I'm thinking, well, they're really doing this just because they're friends or and you start to talk in your own head mm. and you find a way, well, I found a way to justify, well, no, I'm okay. Now, I am okay and I don't regret it, but you think, well, what? how would that have changed my experiences? Would they have been better? I'm not sure. Um, so there's no regrets, but there is an element of uncertainty about what that could have brought me. You won an NBA championship as part of the well, squad. Hang on. Yes. Uh, the San Antonio Spurs. 19 regular season games. You didn't play in the playoffs. No. But you have a ring. You were part of an organisation that achieved the ultimate in the NBA. I do. And I say... Why, why are you... Um, why do you always downplay it? Well, I downplay it on... In, in my mind because I, I don't – I see what the casual observer can see. I understand the casual observer looks at that and say, well, hang on a minute, you've got no right to, 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 to claim any sort of uh, responsibility for that because you, you weren't even – you were in a suit during the finals. But you're you were part on, of the squad absolutely. that got the team to that point. He's the Australian shooter. And he's in his first year where has been a tremendous asset to our team. Let's hear it for Andrew Gaines. And I'm incredibly grateful for that opportunity. And it was one of the highlights of my life to be able to share that experience. But as far as contributing on the floor, then clearly the, the, the evidence is there to say, well, you, you may not, you were the closest thing to it irrelevant as you could possibly be without being irrelevant. Where's the ring? So I keep the ring in the trophy cabinet at home. and uh, you ever put it on? I've never worn it out anywhere. Have you not? No. And, and it's something I, I love, and it sits right next to my signed ball that all the players sign for me. Um, and I have nothing but gratitude and incredible memories of that experience. But, um, but I have no rights to claim any sort of accolade from that. And it's, it's sometimes a little embarrassing when people mention it because, you know, you go to a function, it makes you sound a whole lot better than really what you are because my contribution was was very, very minimal. But it's still one that I learned a lot. I got to see it firsthand. I was in the locker room. I got to meet those players. I got to, I got to be a part of Greg Popovich and... Um, and even to a point now, those experiences when you're there and you share in them, mm. you, you still develop a bond. One of the greatest, most touching things that happened to me last year is I got a letter from Greg Popovich, a handwritten letter. Legendary NBA coach. Yes, uh, because he, he has faced tragedy. You know, his wife passed away and... I sent him a note, as we all did, and thinking, well, this is nice. She was a, a, a beautiful lady and was very helpful and respectful of me and my family when we were there. And um, when he 
uh, it was some time after that. I, 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 we sent him a, a small gift and commiserate, you know, tried to share our condolences. And he, he was not obliged. He wasn't anything. But this heartfelt letter showing respect, recalling things, he went in and dug out a photo of, like, would have been out of his photo album or something, like yeah. the old photo, not a digital one because it wasn't that, a photo of me and him and Brett uh, that he had and sent. Brett Brown. Brett Brown. And, and, and sent that in this letter to me. <laughs> and you go, well, why is it that the San Antonio Spurs are so special? Now, it's got nothing to do with basketball, but it's got to do with people. And that type of care that, mate, oh, I was irrelevant to him, in, but to him it's still a friendship, a bond, um, that he would take that effort that meant enormously to me. And that is a an example of why the organisation is lauded, by why Popovich is so greatly respected, because it goes beyond just, well, can you draw up a play with 15 seconds to go or what are your defensive offensive principles? It goes to how you treat people and, and how you respect people and the relationships that you, you develop. That's the end of Andrew Gay's Part A. So much more to come in Part B, though, specifically a few stories you don't want to miss. Stick with us. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try If we try, try, try Listener